So and as the kids um, head downstairs, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 11. And forewarning, we have a difficult passage in front of us. This passage is hard to read. It's hard to understand. Many people have come to this and have been confused, have been bothered by what they see in the text. And so to give you a direction on where we are going to be going this morning, uh, we're going to walk through the text um, to understand what is going on. And then we're at the end, we're going to ask the question, why did God do this? So um, spoiler alert, this is the passage about Ananias and Sapphira. And if you are not familiar with that passage, um, these are two people that um, are struck down by the Lord. And so um, it is a hard passage to, to understand. It's a hard passage to, to wrap our minds around and accept. Um, so at the end of it all, we're going to ask the question, why did God do this? And then what do we do in light of that? So that's where we're headed this morning. So if you are able to, I invite you to stand up for the reading of God's word. And we read in our passage this morning, Luke writes in verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, as we dive into your word, I pray that you would speak through me. God, I pray that your spirit would fill this place and convict us of sin. God, that we would see your holiness and we would see you for who you truly are. And we would see our sin for what it truly is. God, be glorified this morning. Convict us of sin. Lead us to repentance this morning. For your glory and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Luke begins 
chapter 5 by saying, but a man named Ananias. And so immediately this flows out of what Denton preached on last week, the end of Acts chapter 4. So let's very quickly refresh ourselves on what is going on at the end of Acts chapter 4 that stands in opposite and opposition of what we see here this morning. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And as Denton preached on last week, this is the communion of saints that we see here. So we see the body of all of the believers are fully united, that they are of one heart and soul. To the point where in verse 34 we read, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were, land o- were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So we see such a union and such a love for each other that people are willing to sacrifice everything for their brothers and sisters. They're willing to sell off their wealth and give it to the church so that no one had any need. And this is the type of unity that is going on here in Acts. And then we read in verse 36, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So we have this scenario set up where people are selling off their lands, people are selling off their houses and giving it to the church. And then we have here, thus Joseph, in the same way, in the same attitude, with the same idea, the same heart, the same soul. He comes and he sells a field and brings all of the money and gives it to the apostles' feet. So we have a full example of what this looks like, of what it means for the body of believers to be fully united, heart and soul. And Barnabas is our example. Son of encouragement is his name. He was such an encouragement to the apostles and such an encouragement to the church that they didn't call him Joseph by his name. They gave him a nickname and they called him Barnabas. And so thus Joseph, this is our example. And then we transition, but a man named Ananias. And this transition stands in dark contrast to what we finish reading about in Acts 4. Thus Joseph did this, but a man named Ananias. And the foreshadowing in that, in my mind, I think of a movie scene where you have the camera panning through this nice town. Um, Birds are chirping. It's a pleasant day. People are out walking. Kids are out playing. Everything's great. And the camera pans to a house and zooms into a window of a house And you see a man inside and dark clouds are looming over him and start spreading out from him to encompass the town. So when you see that in a movie, you know something bad is going to happen. And so this transition here, but a man named Ananias is supposed to be foreboding about what is coming. So Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property which, again, was a common thing that happened, a common thing that the church did. 
But then we see the change here. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And a lot of people ask, what's wrong with that? I mean, Peter even says in uh, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So it wasn't required for people to sell off their lands and give the money to the church. They didn't sign a membership covenant that said, I will hold uh, my fellow members accountable and I will submit to the teaching of the apostles and I will sell off all of my lands and give it all to the church. They're, they're under no obligation to do this. The people in Acts 4 are doing this out of a love for each other and a desire for each other. And Ananias and Sapphira are doing it out of a love for themselves and in a desire for themselves. They were under no obligation to sell the property. And even when they did sell it, they were under no obligation to give all of the money to the church. It would have been perfectly acceptable for them to have taken 25%, stored it away, and given 75% to the church. It would have been perfectly acceptable for them to say, we are following the Davis, Ramses, Alpha, Gamma, and, and Delta um, keys to financial freedom is what we are following here. And so we're going to squir squirrel away a portion of this and then give the rest of it to the church. That would have been fine, but that's not what they did. We see this when Peter confronts them in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? So their desire was to deceive. Their desire was to lie to the church, to lie to the apostles. Now, this text doesn't explicitly say this, but we can infer their desire was for the same praise, the same recognition that Barnabas got and that others were getting. They wanted glory for themselves. They wanted to be made much of. They wanted to raise their standing in the church. Yeah, look at everything that's happening. Wow, Barnabas got a lot of pats on the backs. Good boy, Barnabas. Yeah, I want a pat on my back too. So we're going to do this and let people think that we sold it for a lot of stuff. What, what, what harm is there in doing that? It's just praise. It's just glory. It's going to make us feel better. But Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? The verb choice that Luke uses here of filled, Luke uses it only one other time in the entire book of Acts, and that is in Acts 13, and says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So we've got this idea of being filled. And here we've got Ananias being filled with Satan to lie. And then later on, Luke uses the same verb tense to say the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And typically throughout the New Testament, when we talk about filling up, it is in relationship to the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the gifts of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, patience, and self-control. I think I might have said patience twice. But um, you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit. 
We see filling up of the gifts of the Spirit. We see filling up of the graces of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see filling up as a good thing. But here, Ananias has been filled up by Satan to lie. And we know that Satan is the father of lies. And there is nothing good in Satan. And so to be filled up with Satan is an absolutely terrible, awful, horrendous thing. Because you want to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. Instead, Ananias is filled up with Satan. And we see this in a similar way with Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Now, it is different in that Satan, the Luke writes that Satan entered into Judas and possessed him and took him over. And here we see Satan filling up Ananias. But what we see going on here, and when we compare the stories in Luke, when Satan comes in, Satan by force, by brute force, is trying to destroy the church before it even starts. Satan is wanting to stop Jesus Christ. He starts off by tempting Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to the cross. If you submit to me, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you everything. When that doesn't work, he enters into Judas, one of his disciples, to betray him and kill him. Satan is trying to stop the work of God. We see that all the way back in Genesis 3, when Satan enters into the garden and deceives Eve, and by proxy, Adam as well, who was with her. Satan deceives them, lies to them, convinces them that what God has in plan is not what's best for them. Satan enters into Judas and says, you want money. I take the money and betray Christ. The money is better than Christ. And here, Satan fills up Ananias and says, the glory and the praise of people is better than the joy of following Christ. Satan is trying to destroy the church from within this time. It didn't work from an outward attack, so now he's going to try to corrupt the church from within. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie, Peter says. But notice, to lie to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira probably, and this is Aaron Mill's speculation, weren't sitting around thinking, all right, we're going to go in and we're going to lie to God. They probably weren't sitting around thinking that. They were probably thinking, okay, we're going to lie to Peter. We're going to lie to the apostles. We're going to lie to the other members of the church so that they will think better of us. But Peter says here, and then again in verse 4, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. You came into this church and are attempting to deceive the church, but in reality, you are attempting to deceive God, and you are attempting to lie to God. What you think is a little sin of, we're just going to lie to the apostles. We're just going to lie to other people so that they think that we are better than what we are. What they are doing is they are doing something far, far worse. They are lying to the Holy Spirit. They are lying to God. So their sin is not a small sin. It is not an insignificant sin. It is a very serious 
sin that is going on. They might have meant it for just, you know, praise of man, just something small in their minds, but the reality of the situation that is far more grave than what they are thinking about. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then we read, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. There are many at this verse who will try to excuse God. Okay, Ananias, God didn't really kill Ananias. He had a heart attack is what had happened. And there are a lot of people that argue this, that the shock of being caught in a lie, he was horrified and mortified, and so he had a heart attack. He had some physical condition that caused him to die. And coincidentally, so did his wife, Sapphira, when that happened to her too. We don't need to excuse God here. Instead, we need to understand what is going on. And that's our question. Why did God do this? Which I'm not going to answer right now. We're going to wait until the end. We're going to continue walking through. But we see God striking Ananias, Ananias down for his lie for the sin that he had here. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira, they craved and coveted their own glory above that of God. They were greedy. They wanted praise. They didn't want to sacrifice anything for the church. They wanted it to look like they were sacrificing something for the church. But they weren't willing to live with the communion of the saints. They weren't willing to live the same way that we see everybody else at the end of Acts 4 living, but they wanted that without having to sacrifice for the church. And because of their sin, God strikes them down. And again, another question that a lot of people ask, which we'll see when we answer the question, why did God do this, is that Ananias didn't have a chance to repent. He was caught in his sin, and as soon as Peter confronts him, God strikes him down. God didn't give him a second chance, which again is why this passage is hard and it's hard for people to read, but we will see why when we answer that question, why did God do this? So then we have three hours that pass in verse 7, and then Sapphira comes in. So her husband goes in. To lay this down, she's hanging back, and then three hours come. Okay, where is he? Let me go in and see what's going on. Her husband's nowhere to be seen. Instead, Peter's here. And Peter says to her, did you sell the land for this much? So this is her chance to come clean. This is her chance to be honest and say, well, no, we actually didn't sell it for that much. We sold it for X amount, and then we kept such back for ourselves. So Peter's giving her a chance to come clean, but she doesn't. And so Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Now, again, going back to what I already said, I don't believe that they were sitting around thinking, all right, we're going to put the Lord to the test, see if he's true and see if he's real. I think of Gideon with the fleece when Gideon puts the Lord to the test and says, okay, God, if you really want me to do this, I'm putting this fleece down. 
The fleece will be covered in dew in the morning, but the ground around it will be completely dry. God does it. Okay, God, just, just to make sure that I'm crystal clear. Now take the fleece, and the fleece will be dry, and the ground around it will be wet. So that's putting the Lord to the test. I don't believe that Ananias and Sapphira were doing that. I don't believe that that was their intention to come in and say, okay, we're going to see if God is real. We see all this stuff that's going on, so we're going to see if the Holy Spirit is real. We're going to test him out. I don't believe that's what they were doing. In their mind, they were just seeking glory and praise. But here we see that they are indeed testing the Lord because they have set it in their hearts and they've set it in their minds to sin, to lie, to deceive. And so this is a test of the Lord. And they are testing his patience. They are testing his truth of his word. They are testing whether or not God is indeed real. And whether the things that are happening that have been happening in Acts so far are indeed of the Lord or of the man. While that was not necessarily their intention, that is in reality what they are doing. That they are testing the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira had no fear of the Lord in them when they set out to do this. When they set out, we are going to lie and deceive and trick so that we can get glory for ourselves. They were in essence saying, there is no God. Because it's all about man. It's all about us getting the praise. So when they committed to this sin, God doesn't exist. Everything that we see going on, God isn't real. They had no fear of God in their, in their eyes. We read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Having a healthy fear and awe and understanding of who God is is the beginning of knowledge. But then Solomon writes, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And actually, let's go ahead and turn. If you have your Bible with you, I don't have a slide for this. I wasn't thinking to do this, but um, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1. If you have your Bible with you or your app. Proverbs chapter 1. And we will start reading in verse 7. So we're going to see the full weight of what happens to fools, to those who are in it for their own gain. So Solomon writes in 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head, pendants for your neck. In other words, you are about to hear wise counsel. Please heed it. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. 
for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. This is what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. Ananias, with his wife's consent, made a plan to lie. They were greedy. They wanted praise. They wanted to steal the praise from the church. They wanted to steal the praise from God, ultimately, and focus it in on themselves. They wanted the plunder of the joy of being praised and glorified, which belongs to God. They wanted that for themselves. And they were willing to lie. They were enticed by Satan and submitted to him in this. And then Solomon writes in verse 17, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. So here we see Ananias and Sapphira set their hearts on unjust gain and greed. And it cost them their lives. They put the Lord to the test and they lost. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So in both accounts, you have the same narrative of Ananias falling down dead, Sapphira falling down dead. They are wrapped up and carried out and buried. The idea that is brought along with this is the same idea as in the Old Testament when you have Israel gathered together and people who sin are sent out of the camp. People who are unclean are sent out of the camp. And that is to keep the camp from being contaminated by that which is unclean. It is designed, the whole system and structure of God's law was designed for them to see the seriousness of sin. That sin is unclean. And unclean things have no place in the presence of God. And you are camped around the tabernacle of God. And you are therefore in God's presence. Maybe not his immediate presence as if you were in the center of the temple in the Holy of Holies, but God's presence is here in this camp and nothing unclean belongs in the presence of God. And so they were to cast unclean people out of the camp. Unclean people were to leave the camp until they could perform the appropriate sacrifice or wait the proper amount of time before they were able to come back in as clean. And here we see Ananias and Sapphira being taken out in the same idea. They're being taken out of the camp because that which is unclean does not belong in the church, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, with God and his people. So they are brought out of the camp and buried away. Sin is so very serious. So why did God do these things? We have to have a proper understanding of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin in order to fully wrap our heads around why 
God did this. And we can see God doing the same things throughout the entire Bible. If we look back at Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, what was their sin? Their sin was desiring to be like God. They wanted to be wise in their own eyes. They didn't want God. How did God respond to that sin? He didn't just kick them out of the Garden of Eden. He cursed them and the land. The whole earth is cursed because of them. We have inherited this sinful condition because of them. Their sin had lasting repercussions. It wasn't a small thing, their sin. Yeah, I want to be like God. There's a video that I watched one time. Of um, It was a really well-made video. The animation and everything was really good. And it was talking about the garden and the sin and everything else. And in the video, it said that Adam and Eve took the fruit because they wanted to sit on the throne of God, which I would agree with that. But then it said, God knew that wasn't a good idea, so he kicked them out of the garden. And that's when I stopped watching the video, because <laughs> that is not what happened in the garden. They sinned against a holy God, and that sin had dire consequences. And so God didn't just kick them out of the garden because it was a bad idea. He cursed them, and the whole world was cursed because of them. And they were separated from God. And their children, and their children, and their children, all the way down to us today, have this condition where we are separated from God. That is the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. Death entered the world. Sin entered the world. Because of that. Leviticus chapter 10, setting the stage, God has brought, he's brought his people, he's brought Israel out of Egypt, brought them across the Red Sea, he's brought them up to Mount Sinai, and he has given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and he's given the law to Moses, and they are to build a tabernacle where God can dwell and in the tabernacle, God lays out, one, how it's supposed to be laid out, how it's supposed to be positioned, but two, how they are to worship him. He spells out exactly what they are to do, and they are not to do anything different because worshiping God requires us to worship him on his terms, not on our terms. And then in Leviticus chapter 10, we have the story of Nadab and Abihu, two priests that decided that they would offer strange fire to God, that they would offer unholy fire to God, fire of their own design and fire of their own making. And they went about this in their own way and went in to the, into the tabernacle to offer up their own worship to God the way they saw fit. And God struck them dead because of that. That is the seriousness of sin. That is the holiness of God. God's holiness is so holy and our sinfulness so despicable and disgusting and awful that when our sin encounters the holiness of God and God's full holiness, we are destroyed. 
Sin is a very serious thing. We see in Joshua chapter 7, Achan. So Israel has taken the promised land, or is taking the promised land, is in the middle of fighting to, against the peoples that are there and in the land of Canaan. And God, they attacked this one town, and God said, burn everything, destroy everything, keep nothing for yourselves, destroy everything. Achan saw some things that he wanted, and he took it, and he hid it, and he kept it. And God's anger burned against the nation of Israel for this one man's sin. Again, because God is holy, and God's holy presence will not be around sin. And so God left Israel. His presence left Israel. And Israel goes to attack the town of Ai. And, oh, they're weak, they're scared, they're terrified of us. We can go in and we can do this. But because of Achan's sin and God's presence wasn't with them, 36 people died. 36 men died in that attack. And they ran away scared and they fled from Ai. And Ai was like, oh, these Israelites, they're nothing. Look at us. We conquered them. This is great. Joshua cries out to God, why have you abandoned us? And God said, because of Achan's sin. Sin is serious. So what happened to Achan? Achan was stoned along with his entire family because of his sin. Sin is not small. Sin has dire consequences. Second Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah. The ark was taken. David has, has gotten the ark back, and he's taking it back into Jerusalem, the ark of the covenant. And David is not bringing the ark back in the way God had said he should bring it back in. God laid out in the law exactly how the ark was to be carried. And David put it on a donkey cart, and they're going over the bumpy road, and it's bouncing around and jostling. And Uzzah is walking next to it, and they hit a pothole, and it tips over, and it's going to fall off into the dirt and mud. And Uzzah, he's a good guy, just instinctively holds his hand up to stop this, but is struck dead because his unholiness, his uncleanness cannot come into contact with the presence of a holy God. And so Uzzah is struck dead because of that. God's holiness is far beyond what we make it out to be most of the time. And our sin is far worse than we ever make it out to be. Second Kings, Gehazi. So um, <clears throat> Naaman goes to see Elisha um, to be cured of his leprosy. And after he's cured of his leprosy, he offers to pay Elisha, saying, here, let me give you money. And Elisha says, no, 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 I'm not taking any money. God did this. God gets all the glory. And so Naaman leaves. Gehazi, uh, Gehazi, in his greed, runs after Naaman to get some stuff, lies to him and convinces him like, hey, the, the prophet is wanting some things for some other people. And so he gets money and, and supplies from Naaman. And he's like, all right, I got some stuff for myself. Now, he is not struck dead, but Elisha says, why have you done this thing? This greed, this evil that you have committed in the sight of the Lord, you are now cursed with leprosy and all of your descendants are cursed with leprosy. So they didn't die, but his sin had lasting consequences. There are repercussions for sin. Judas, we know what happened to Judas. We've already talked about that. But we see that Judas's greed in betraying Christ cost him his life. 
Acts 12, we see Herod, King Herod, King of the Jews, in Acts chapter 12, which we will get to um, in many more months. But um, Herod gives a speech, and the people that listened to him said, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And they're worshiping Herod as a God. And what does Herod do? Nothing. He glories in the praise. So what does the Lord do? Immediately, an angel of the Lord strikes him dead. Our sin is very serious. Why did God do this to Ananias and Sapphira? Because he is holy and sin is awful. Sin is such an affront to his holiness. There is also a trend and a theme in each one of these stories, including Ananias and Sapphira, that we see. God creates the world, and at the start of creation, Adam and Eve sin, and a curse is brought in. God pulls people out of Egypt and is delivering them, and in the midst of this, Nadab and Abihu sin. At the start of all of this, they sin, and God punishes that immediately. Achan Israel is entering into the promised land. At the start of all of this, Achan sins, and God punishes that. Uzzah, the ark, is coming back into Jerusalem. And at the start of this, Uzzah sins by touching the ark, and God punishes that. Judas, we see at the start of the church, Christ is going to die. Christ, this is God's plan, but Judas seeks to betray the Lord. And Judas dies for that. And then here, the church is starting off. And Ananias and Sapphira sin in this way, and God immediately punishes it. So we see this sin as God is transitioning from one work to another work to another work. When people sin, God immediately responds. Because he is sending a warning. God is doing all of this for his glory, is what we see. We see that great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. After Ananias dies and after Sapphira dies, great fear came upon everybody, is what, is what we see. This is not a cowering fear. This isn't a trembling fear. Fear. It's not like watching the shows where somebody comes in with a gun and people are, no, please don't shoot, please don't shoot. It's not that kind of fear. This is a realization that God is who he says he is and God is real. And that should cause all of us to pause and have a healthy fear of who God is. When God says that sin, that the wages of sin is death, he means it. When God says repent, he means it. God is not somebody to be dealt with lightly. He's not somebody to ignore and cast off into the shadows. God will be glorified. We read over and over in Nehemiah that God 
says that he is going to punish Israel, or he's going to punish these other nations, or he's going to deliver Israel. He's going to do all of these things. And over and over and over again, God says, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am going to do this, but for my name's sake. It is not for you, Judah, that I am going to do this, but for my name's sake that I am going to do this. Moses, when he is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Israel is down at the bottom creating a golden calf and worshiping the golden calf. The presence of God is up on the mountain. They have heard God speak and they were terrified of God's presence to where they said, Moses, you deal with God. We, we can't. We would die if we dealt with them. So Moses is up dealing with God and they're down here making an idol and worshiping false gods. And so God says to Moses, go back down. I'm going to kill these people and start all over again. And Moses' plea with him is, what about your name, O God? The nations will profane your name. The nations will mock your name. God cares about his name and his name being great, which is why we see a trend, a theme of as God is moving in new ways in creation with Israel being delivered from Egypt, with Israel entering into the promised land, with the ark coming back into Jerusalem, meaning the presence of God is coming with the ark back into the temple. When we see all of these things going on and on, we see this at the start of the church. God will not share his glory with anybody. God will be glorified. And it's for his name that he does this. It's so that the name of Jesus Christ will be exalted. The name of God will be glorified and magnified that he strikes Ananias and Sapphira down. Because God is holy. And our sin demands justice. And that justice is death. For the wages of sin is death, is what Paul writes in Romans. So what do we do with this passage? Well, for those who are disciples of Christ, we have been forgiven. We sung about it this morning. We did it through our liturgy. We have been forgiven. And when we read this passage, we should have a healthy fear and respect of God because God is not somebody to be trifled with. He is not somebody to be dismissed. And our sin is very serious. It is not acceptable to say, I'm forgiven in Jesus Christ. I can go and do what I want to do. I know I'm sinning in this way regularly, but it's okay. I'm forgiven. All is good. It is not acceptable. It is not okay. And this passage serves as our warning that that is not okay. It is not okay to live in our sin. Because either you are filled with the Holy Spirit or you are filled with the fruit of Satan. And if you are living in your sin, who, what are you filled with? The Holy Spirit isn't in that sin. The Holy Spirit isn't there. Who's there? Your own pride. Your own desires. Lies. Hypocrisy. Greed. All of those come from the father of lies. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So if you are in Christ, flee from your sin. Let your sin go. Cast it aside. It clings so closely. You cannot run the race that is set before you if you are clinging to your sin. Let it go. Flee from that. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see put off the old self and put on the new. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we do all of that? We fill ourselves with the word of God. We study the word of God. We know the word of God. We turn our eyes to look to Jesus as it says in Hebrews. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we can run the race with endurance. We don't do it on our own. We look to Christ. By God's grace and by God's mercy, he doesn't deal with the whole world the way he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. Otherwise, not a single one of us would be here. But God is rich in mercy. And in Christ Jesus, we have that mercy. So don't cast that aside and live in your sin. Cast the sin aside and live in Christ. That is what we should do with this passage. We should have a healthy fear of God and understanding his holiness and having an understanding of the seriousness of our sin. And then we turn to Christ and we look to Christ and we focus our minds on Christ. If you are here and you are not a disciple of Christ, if you are in this room and you don't know Jesus or you are rejecting Jesus, this passage serves as a warning for you as well. God is real and your sin is so very real. God promises that one day the whole world will be judged. We will die. We will stand before God and his judgment. And if God treats sin this way that we see, that we have laid out here this morning, now know that there is a serious judgment and a serious consequence that is coming for rejecting Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, is what Paul tells us. Hebrews chapter 3, the author writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for 40 years. So this is referring back when Israel left Egypt after Mount Sinai. They didn't enter the promised land. Because of their sin, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And God performed sign and miracle and sign and miracle, and they rejected that. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you reject Jesus Christ, 
there is no rest for you. If you reject Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God. You will receive judgment. And you will not be allowed into his rest. You will be cast into hell. Because you have violated and fought against a holy, eternal God, that punishment is eternal as well. For the wages of sin is death. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But there is hope. If you are here in this room, you might be watching online, there is hope. You are not dead yet. You have not been struck dead yet. I love Jonah. And if you are not very familiar with Jonah, Jonah was a prophet, and Israel had an enemy called Nineveh. And God said, go to Nineveh and let them know that I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah said, no, I don't want to. I want you to destroy them. So he fled, got on a ship, sailed as far away as he could get. God sent a storm sent a fish to swallow him up, spit him out on land. Jonah's like, all right, I will go to Nineveh and tell them what you want me to tell them. So he went to Nineveh, and he preached, and he walked the streets declaring what God had said. And the king of Nineveh heard about this and called everybody to say, let us repent in sackcloth and ashes and hope that God will relent from this disaster. And so they did, and God relented, and Jonah was angry with God. And Jonah said, and Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew that God is merciful, which is why he didn't want to tell him. He wanted his enemies to die. So know that God is merciful, that you can repent. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is the cry of God. Turn to me, repent, believe in Jesus Christ. We read in scriptures, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a promise, and God is faithful to his promises. So if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, or you reject Christ, don't reject him anymore, because God is holy, and our sin is very serious. Let's pray.